they were trying to develop what they should do as a church, you know, what should be their sort of mission. And um, everything really revolved around what are they supposed to do with the building? You know, all their activities, it was all located where that would be. It was all kind of started and began with what do I do with this place we're in? And I walked away kind of like going, almost like sad for it, because you knew, you know, you knew without a greater sense of vision and calling, the church was just going to fold as almost every church does and that like that. And really what had happened is, uh, you know, it was that the church, the mission of the church was to serve the building, not the opposite. And that's a real risk. You know, it's, I was talking to uh, Howard Burgoyne, and we've talked about some of the different uh, building options. We've looked at some various different places. And he said, be very careful. And he used this word. He said, um, be very careful. I know right now you feel like a snail outside of a shell, you know, as a church being without a building. But be very careful, he says, because the building needs to serve the mission of your church, not the other way around. You know, um, which is really what the, the mission of the church is not serving the building. Whatever you get has to serve what you're trying to do. And so what does the question then become? What is the mission of the church? <laughs> what are you trying, you know, what do you want to be and do becomes the first big question. Then ask, what kind of facility best accomplishes this? It's simple, but oftentimes you just want to run and have something without having thought through what best accomplishes what you want to be and do. And so one of the things we've been working on uh, as a you know, leadership team and thinking about what is our vision and our mission? What do we want to be? What does that look like? And then ask the question, okay, what, how do we best accomplish that? You know, and we've been talking about these, and I just throw them out there again. They've been on your bulletin every week. We're, you know, what's our vision of what we want to be? A vibrant community being changed by Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, boldly following God into the world. That's what we want to be. And, and, and what does that look like? What do we want to be doing? You know, our mission is to actively engage with God and his word, to foster a caring community of disciples of Jesus, to bring God's healing to our hurting world, to invite our neighbors to follow Jesus with us. This is what we want to be doing as a church. And so you want to break these down even more, saying, okay, we want to begin to set real goals as a church. How, how do we move in this direction? What does this look like functionally? You know, what, is our, what are our real goals underneath that? So that's what we're in the process of doing. But I thought as we start our new year as a church, we want to all kind of gather so we're all thinking the same way. And what do we want to be here? What are we trying to be? What do we want to be doing? And so I thought we'd do that in the month of January and walk through some of what we want to be as a church. Um, and I'll, today, I want, and actually the next two weeks, I want to start with this first idea of this mission, actively engaging with God and his word. You know, what, what does it mean to be a community that this is, this is part of what we are doing and what we're about? And today, I want to talk about this idea of that first part of it, actively engaging with God. So to engaging God. It's a big statement. I mean, I don't know how people feel about a line like that, to engage or, even as Harold said earlier, to entangle ourselves with God, which is really what it is. I mean, I think some people nod and go, yeah, that sounds great. Other people go, whoa. And, you know, everybody should say whoa to a bit. So if you start with the preposition, uh, presupposition, 
that um, you know, God is the creator of the universe, the one who made all things, saying we can actually engage with God? That should make you stop and go, whoa, really? But that's exactly what the scripture calls us to and says is what happens. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's all over the place. I mean, James, come near to God, he will come near to you. God will come near to you. Let us draw near to God with sincere heart and full assurance that faith brings. Look at the language of Psalm 18. I love you, Lord. Wow, that's engagement. You don't love things you're not engaged with. You know, there's this sense, yeah, double entire, it works. But it's, um, he's, a, he's a wordsmith. So, um, uh, but this idea that, and this is how God's people have always been, that we're actually the people of God. We're people who engage with God. I mean, look what Pascal said about it. He said, uh, this is, you know, the French mathematician. He says, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God, the creator made known through Jesus Christ. The idea that this is how we are made. It's not just that we can engage with God. That is how we're created to be. Right? This is our, we are created to be in fellowship with God. This is the whole story of the scripture, right? We're with God. We broke and got separated from God. Now through Jesus Christ, we can be reconciled to God and engage with him again as we were meant to be. It's, it's, so it's not like a small part of the scripture. It's the center, central idea of our faith that we are people who engage with God. You know, it's not a theoretical spiritual feeling either. It's not just that we're spiritual people, but there is a living God, a living person to whom we engage with. Right? That, that was actually what was so radical for the Israelites, right? Because there's always lots of religions and stuff. That's not a big deal, right? That we're spiritual beings or people have, you know, various religions. That's not the thing. When Israel came out, it says, listen, our God is real. He's there. You actually engage with him. He's the true God who created all things. Not a God of this and a God of that or a God of that. God of all who made all things. This is what this, this, they use this language, the living God. Or Joshua says, this is how you will know the living God is among you, that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites. He's saying, people, this is not just, we're not one God among every, our God's actually going to clear the land that we're going to go, that he promised you to, in a real way, and act in real history, in real time. He's real. You know, same thing with Daniel, right? You know, the Babylonians had gods for everything under the sun. There were millions of gods. And then they look at Daniel, and they're like, whoa, he actually seems to have a real one. I mean, this god actually seems to act in the book of Daniel. You know, uh, Belteshazzar, Daniel, servant of the living God. Has your god, whom you serve, continually been able to rescue you from the lions? And the answer was yes, he did. And Psalm 46, which is our, right, this is our worship manual, right? We say God is our refuge and strength, and he is an ever-present help in trouble. Our God acts. He's available, and he's there, and we engage with him. But it's far more the scripture's call than just to simply say in this theoretical way that we have a God who acts, who can save us and deliver us. We are to actually engage with him. I mean, look at Psalm 42. This is, look at this language. My soul thirsts for God, right? As the deer pants for the water, that is what we are for God. 
where can I go? When can I go? It's actually supposed to be where can I go? And meet with, meet with God. What an amazing phrase. I mean, the language has to shock you a little bit because we get actually used to this language and we don't actually really engage with the language and go, wow. I mean, look what Daniel read earlier. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. That word for lovely, by the way, that is the same word where, like in, in a Song of Songs, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. You know, oh, how beloved is your dwelling place where you are, God. Here's even talking about the temple courts where, the, you know, the place where God was localized, but meant like wherever God is, that, how beloved that is. Look at this language. My soul yearns, it even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart, my flesh, cry out for the living God. You know, this is your soul, your strength, right? Your heart all crying to be with God and to know him. I mean, that language, even the sparrow has found a home. The swallow a nest for herself, for she may have her young. What an amazing statement for how God is to be us. Like where the, where the swallow finds a place to rest in the nest to raise their young. So is the Lord for us. A place near your altar, Lord Almighty. My King and my God. Other language we just throw out there without thinking. He's not the King or the God. To put a, to put a, a first person pronoun on the end of that, actually, it is, it is personal. And it's shockingly personal. You know, that, that, uh, that this is my God and my King. We are to relate to God like now, for many of us, I think to think about relating to God in such an emotive way. I think some people feel, feel comfortable with that. But for a lot of folks, you think, whoa, I'm not comfortable with that. You know, maybe that's a, there's different personalities with it. But I actually think we were, um, I think what I found in my life is I've seen people again and again become surprised by the kind of relationship they can actually have with God and the way they engage with God. I mean, I remember um, relating to me uh, um, when I had my first son here, who was not paying attention to my sermon. That's okay. It's, uh, it's all right. It's just, it, must, it must be tough having your dad up here talking. You know, like, you know, I always feel for kids. Um, <clears throat> he's a pastor's kid. Samuel going, oh, listen to dad was killer. Um, but like, I actually really thought that when I would have, when, when uh, I was going to have a son, I thought, I just, you know, I see all these people who just fawn over their kids and love their kids. And I go, I, that's not who I am. I don't, I don't have that. It was part of the ways I was, you know, bad upbringing or, you know, stuff like that. I just, I will be faithful. You know, I'll be faithful, I'll be there, but I don't, it's not, it's not there. It wasn't like, you know, woe was me. I just didn't think it was there. And then when I actually, you know, then when he was actually born, it was as if something was there that was birthed that I didn't know was there. I was like, I can't believe how much I like this little thing. <laughs> I love this little thing. I can, I, I can just be with, I can nap with him. And it's like the best feeling in the world. I'm like, where did that come from? I'm like, you know, and I think when we, I, I, it was a very similar experience for me when I became a believer in Jesus. I'm like, something became there that I didn't know was there. You know, actually, I didn't cry, I think, for like probably 10 years. And then I cried almost every week. I'm like something inside of me, you know, and, what, and that's part of that asking of Pascal, there's a part of your true humanity that only gets met in this way. 
you know, which kind of I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because we to raise the question, why do we need to do this? You know, why, why is it that God is telling us to do it? Right? We see it in language, right? What's the command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. We've said it so many times that we actually stop listening to that command, don't we? And really think, wow, that is everything. That is with your whole being to love God. Why does he want such a thing? You know, um, what, does God need that from us? But remember all of God's commands, right, are all because that's how we operate best, right? You know, um, you know and, and this is a huge topic, and I'll just touch on that thing, but it's, as we were saying, it, it's what we were created to be. This is how we work right. We are meant to be engaged with God, and that's what gets it all working right. That's when we operate right as humans. You know, we need God. You know, I remember in, in Psalm 73, there's, it's a wonderful, it's an amazing psalm, but the psalmist is saying, I'm getting in such trouble right now because I'm looking at all these people who are doing terrible things and the world seems to be working great for them. And what is the point of trying to keep my heart clean and everything else when people are doing terrible stuff? All the guys, the guys who are cheating at work and worrying about themselves, they seem to be doing great. Look at me. And he goes, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands. And I said, what was the point of all this? When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. It put it all into perspective. You know, when we're from the place of engaged with God, it's where the world gets put in place. The struggles, the hardships down here, the world's a messy place. And kind of related to that is engaging with God is how he changes us. This is a fancy term, but I think it's a really important concept to get is this is how God orders our affections. This is an old fancy way of saying it, that, you know, we help to order our lives and order the things that we love in the right order. Uh, here's what Augustine said, which I think is really good, and it's a, this is, a, again, an important concept and a very confusing quote. Um, he said, living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. To love things, that is to say, in the right order. So that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less, or more, or lesser, or greater love for things that should be loved equally. That's clear. You know, for the love of an editor, you know, for instance, you know. Fifth century, who needed them, right? You know, I'm going to write this and you're going to read it, all right? But this idea is, but you can understand his point, right? That things have an appropriate amount of love. And we need to have our affections ordered rightly. You can see this all the time, right? Do we, people love money more than it's appropriate to love money, right? Sometimes in our world, we, everything's binary, right? You either all money or no money. No, no, there's an appropriate amount of concern for it. Vocation. There's an appropriate amount of concern and love for your vocation. But have you ever met anyone where you feel like that love is out of order? And what happens when your love of your vocation gets disordered? It messes up the rest of your life. Oh, uh, your children. Right? There's an appropriate amount. of Your child is not the ultimate love, is it? What happens when the child's the ultimate love, right? When he, when he has a too high up on the hierarchy. You ever see parents who have trouble 
giving their kids away or losing their children or letting them grow up or marry someone else? It's in a, and what happens to a child who's loved like an idol? It's not good for the child. There's an appropriate amount of love for your spouse, for your that, for work. There's a right ordering. And this is one of these ideas that we place God at the top, that he is the ultimate love, and that makes all the things get rightly ordered. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis said it like this, also confusing, but a little less so. He says, not only is God the supreme love above all other loves, he orders the affections of our hearts. Without the ordering of our loves and affections, anyone may become a rival for our supreme love of God. Our spouse, our child, our dearest friend, More than once in the Gospels do we hear Jesus requiring total allegiance of one's heart above any other human relationship. Yet the mystery we discover through the sanctification of the Spirit is that our relationships are not lessened when they are ordered in Christ. They are enriched and fulfilled. Does that make sense? it's It's not like your marriage becomes worse because you've made God in front of your spouse. It becomes richer. And think about also, when God is your supreme love and you are supremely engaged with God, then you actually don't require your spouse's love, right? You don't require from your children. You are free actually just to love them and forgive them and show them grace. You're able to actually love your work because it actually stays in its proper priority. You're able to love recreation because it stays in its right place. It doesn't take over your life. You don't pop it there. There's a right amount of rest. And part of having God wants our whole heart so we can rightly order our lives as they're meant to be. So the obvious question is, so how do I do it? Hey, I'm going to really let you down on this one. I'm not going to... This is so modern of a question, isn't it? Give me the you know, seven ways to become seven effective habits of a spiritual person. You know, or something like, you know, how, here, here's what you do, and then you will engage with God. Oh, good, great. Let me just, I'll just be able to check that one off. You know, you realize if you think like that, then God's no longer a person to whom you're in a relationship with. Right? It becomes just another method or some vague spirituality or some experience you have which you can control. When you do this, that happens. So don't think about it in those terms. Um, you know, I... Uh, I've, I've told this, in, uh, it's a story Arthur Katz told, which I, I, I've always loved it. And he, he was actually in front of a huge uh, group, people's evangelists, in front of a big people, I think it was in, uh, in Berkeley. And one of the students, you know, challenged him and said, how can you know when you're hearing from God? And he said, right when the guy asked that question, a dog came running up in this giant, loud crowd. And right when it got to the front, you could see the dog suddenly like plucks out its ear because it could hear his owner's master say his voice. And the dog just went straight over it and sat next to him. You think, how did the dog, in the midst of this whole crowd and noise, pick up his voice? And the idea was, when he's a puppy, he probably couldn't, could he? In all the mess, he couldn't hear it. But as the longer he lived with his master, the longer he came to know him and to love him to be with him, he came to, you know, there was something else that he knew about it. That he could hear that voice in the midst of the cutting. In many ways, that's, that's the life with God. That's the engagement with God. We know his voice, we know his presence. And it grows throughout life. It's a relationship. I mean, we could talk about practices, and I'm not saying they're unimportant. You know, setting apart time each day, learning to listen to God, the role of scriptures in relating to God, learning 
uh, to engage your whole being in corporate worship. Different types of people. Some people are solitude. Some like music. Some truth. I mean, there's all kinds of different things, etc., etc., etc. Really, you can just Google and get a giant list. And all of them are useful, right? But the key is, it's not about methodology. It's about desire. It's about seeking to engage with God. All that other stuff is just, you know, I mean, it's fine having methods, but that's, none of those methods will do anything of themselves. Um, you know, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. That's that remarkable promise. We seek after God and we find him. We ask and it's given to us. God wants to engage with us. I mean, the bottom line is it's believing God wants to interact with us. You know, it's, it's learning to open yourself up to interacting with God, sensing God's presence, which is real and true. To learning to receive comfort and strength and guidance from him. To learning to walk with God and a living a life pleasing to him, right? It's not, it's not some kind of like... You just realize that God actually knows how we are supposed to live and learning to live that kind of a life. Learning to praise him and letting thankfulness and joy flow from you, from your engagement with him. Letting the Holy Spirit change our lives. That's what it means to be a, a people engaged with God. You know, to back us up, this is what we, you say, one of our missions as a church, what are we about? This is what we're about. You know, we desire to be a place where everyone is actively seeking to grow deeper in their relationship with God. Seems simple, but you know, you have to say that is, that is a key goal. So whatever you want to do, boy, that stays front and center. Because that's what we're about. You know, as we, um, as we come to our table this morning, the communion, in some ways when you say, you know, actively engaging with God, that's... That's what everything's about, isn't it? Isn't that what every sermon's about? How do you engage with God? How do you engage with God in the world, every sphere of your life? You know, all the worship services, what, what? It's about engaging with God. Because we want to hold lives like that. Um, and communion specifically is a way by which God's people all universally over time have actually sought to engage with God. You know, to, we look at that promise, come near to God, and he'll come near to you. So in a very real way, you know, you come forward and come near. And it's not magic. It says the mysterious way that God will meet us in the midst of these elements to the heart that seeks to come to him. Now this verse has another line to it. So he says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And there's a real sense that oftentimes we didn't talk about what stops us from engaging with God. And oftentimes it's not God is what we do that pulls us away from it. I have, I've you know, told a story a lot of times when, when my children was young that, you know, I, I didn't get my, my customary hug when I came in the door. And I thought, what's happening? And ironically, he had found that, you know, he was like guarding against his door. Like, don't go in there. I'm like, what is going on? And he had, you know, painted all over his bed and stuff. He was very little. But... <laughs> <clears throat> but the idea was that I came in wanting to embrace, but something he had done they knew he shouldn't have pushed him away. And so that's part of that thing is that, you know, we often don't engage with God because 
you know, there's parts of our life we're not willing to lay there that we know we shouldn't. There's things we do that push us away. And so in worship, in communion even, we stop and we say, Lord, I lay these things before you. I confess them. I've, my, my loves are disordered, Lord. I've loved my vocation. I've loved money. I've loved other things wrong. I've loved my children more than is appropriate. I've made them idols in my life. So let's just go in quiet before the Lord. Confess and seek the Lord, and then we'll continue on in communion. Now, in the name of Jesus, because of his death on the cross and your faith in him, I declare you are forgiven. And you can have peace with God. And you can come to him and engage with him. Jesus said, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls.